Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter 1. And um, I appreciate what Boots just prayed, that as we come to the Word this morning, and, and really it's, it's the desire of my heart, you know, when I'm praying about this for you, and even when I'm, you know, when I'm studying the Word just on my own, just reading through for my own benefit, not preparing a sermon or anything, is that I wouldn't just read the Word of God, that you wouldn't just read the Word of God, but that it would read us. And I think you know what I mean by that, don't you? That we wouldn't just engage this text and read it like we would any other text or any other story, any other book or anything, because it's not, right? This is the Word of the living God. And so when we read it, what we want really is not just to read and comprehend it, we want it to read and comprehend us, right? We want it to, to examine us we want it to renew our minds. We want the Word of God to be active and living in us, right? And part of that active, active and, and, and living presence of the Word of God in our lives is that it reads us. It examines us. It exposes and unfolds our hearts, right? And so that's my prayer this morning. I share that with, 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 with Boots Let's stand together, and I want us to read. Um, I want us to read the first 15 verses again of Mark um, because they're a unit, really, that goes together. But we're going to spend our time this morning really focusing on verses 2 through 8. Let's read this together. This is the Word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the, animal, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. Let's be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
Father, I thank you for, for these words. That you carried Mark along by the Holy Spirit. And that you gave him these very words to write for our salvation and for our edification. That you gave him these words to testify to the glory of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. That you gave him these words, that we would read them. That, Lord, we would desire to have our hearts and our minds conformed to them. That through the the reading and the preaching of these words, Lord God, you would speak to our souls. You would speak to us, Lord God, what we need to hear for life. And I pray this morning, Lord, that all of us in this room, myself included, we would all have hearts to respond rightly to what we're going to hear today. I pray, Father, that we would, we would come to these words, not as words perhaps that we know supremely well. You know, I, I know that most of us have read this text many times. But I pray that we would come with an earnest desire for this text to examine us, for these words, Lord God, to do divine work in our souls that we desperately need. Whether we know it or not, you know, whether we know it or not, Lord, we oftentimes think ourselves far better spiritually than we are. But you know, you know what we need. And you provide it in perfect measure. So I pray, Lord God, that we would draw near to you right now. I thank you for being present with us. Thank you for manifesting your presence with us in the singing, in the, in the outpouring of our hearts. And now, Lord God, be our teacher. Train our hearts. Teach us according to your word. And let us have hearts to receive your truth with gladness. Move in our midst right now. Arrest our attention, I pray. In the blessed name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, last week, beloved, we, as we began this introduction to this series in the Gospel of Mark, we really focused on the meaning of Mark's direct, very direct, and very simple introductory statement. Right? Look at it again. Verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? And we, we, we stayed there, you know, last week, and we looked at that word gospel, right? We, we examined that word gospel, where it comes from, what it meant, you know, in history, and, and what now it means to us, what truth, what, what, what reality we have infused into that word as we have stole it, stolen it from, you know, the ancient Greeks and made it our own. And we talked about that this gospel, what it means at its core is this is good news. This is joyful tidings. This is a a glad message. And it's it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the sum of it all. Yes, there are aspects to the gospel and there are parts of the gospel that we talk about. But if we really think about it, when we really get down to it, Jesus Christ is himself the sum of the gospel, right? He's the fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's promise that he made through the prophets in ages past, the the promise that God is coming 
The promise that your God reigns. The promise that your God is coming to invade the lives of his chosen people and he is bringing with him salvation and peace and joy in his hands. It's the fulfillment of the promise that God is coming as a mighty warrior to deliver his own, right? And, and, and as a shepherd who will lovingly care for his sheep. The promise that God is bringing blessing for his people, but he is bringing recompense, retribution, right, for his enemies. The greatest good news ever proclaimed among fallen sinners is the good news that God is coming, that God is coming to his people, that he rules and reigns over everything, and praise God that he has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And as we get into sort of the unfolding of, of Mark's gospel here, the first thing that he wants for us to understand of, that, that is of greatest importance here is Christ's identity. Because the identity of Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. It's central to the meaning of what Mark writes for us. Central to the good news. You know, the good news of the gospel is the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that he is the son of God. He is God himself. He is God in the flesh. God come to earth, right? And the reason that's important is this. Mark wants to set his gospel apart immediately from all of the fairy tales and all of the legends and all of the ancient stories of folklore, he wants to set his gospel apart as being divine truth, right? As being divine truth and, and as being universally significant. In other words, the reason Paul, or Paul, yeah, the reason, um, habit, right? We've been in Romans for so long. The reason Mark is, is visiting and, and, and talking about here the identity of Christ as the Son of God, remember, is because this gospel, though it is accessible to everyone, is a gospel that is primarily written for Gentiles. It is primarily written for Roman Christians. It is written in Rome first for Roman Christians or Roman citizens who have not yet come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wants to establish beyond question that Jesus Christ is himself God, right? In fact, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you how he, how he does this, okay? Now, I want you to remember that in, in, the, in the Roman church, right, you had this mixture of, of Gentiles and Jews, but the Gentiles were pretty well versed in Old Testament scripture. They were pretty well versed in Old Testament, you know, uh, theology, which is why Paul builds so much of Romans off of that, right? So here we are in Mark's gospel. And I want you to see what he does here in verses 2 and 3. Look at him with me again, right? Mark writes these words. He says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you looked in your center column reference in your Bible or your reference that's at the bottom or wherever it is in your Bible, if you looked at the center column reference, you would immediately note here that these words, these verses two and three are really an amalgamation of two Old Testament texts, right? One of them is from Malachi and the other one is from Isaiah. But because Isaiah was the greater prophet in the sense that he wrote more than Malachi did, okay, because he was the greater prophet in terms of writing, Mark identifies this, this text that he's, you know, put together from Malachi and put together from Isaiah as coming from Isaiah. That was just the normal way that you would do it back in those days. But I want you to notice what's written in Malachi. And I want you to notice what is written in Isaiah, okay? In Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, that's the first part of this, Mark quotes from, where, where, from, from Malachi's writing when he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now in Malachi, the person that's talking there is Almighty God, Yahweh, right? The Lord God, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, we call him, you know, in the Old Testament, right? He's the one who is speaking here. And notice he's speaking of himself. He says, I'm going to, that, that a messenger is coming to prepare the way before me. I will send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. The one who is speaking here is Yahweh, whom we refer to as God the Father, right? In the New Testament. Then Mark quotes from Isaiah 40 in verse 3. In Isaiah 40 in verse 3, God says, God says, Almighty God, Lord of hosts, right? Yahweh. God says, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now here's what I want you to notice. In both of those Old Testament quotations, right? The focus is on the Lord God, the Lord God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, right? The focus is on Yahweh coming to his people, on you know, God coming into this sin-stained world and this messenger or herald that will go before him. And here's what Mark does. Mark takes these Old Testament prophecies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Because we know Mark's inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Right? So he takes these Old Testament texts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these Old Testament prophecies that were originally about Yahweh, and he makes them to be specifically about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, right? Which is what Christ means. And he quotes them as saying, I send my messenger before your face. And he will prepare your way. Do you see that? In other, in other words, by applying these texts to the Son of God, Mark is emphasizing here from the very outset so that we get it, so that we're not confused. He is, he is 
He is emphasizing from the very outset, Jesus is God. He's God. He's the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the Lord of hosts. The Lord Jesus Christ is not an earthly king like all the other kings in David's line. He is Messiah God. He is divine king. He is King Jesus, the Son of of God. Well, you can sit there. We can sit there here right on the other side of all of this, recipients of the full counsel of the living God in his canon that is complete. We can sit on the other side. Well, of course we knew that, right? But I want you to think about how radical it is when Mark is saying this. Because it's very significant. In fact, it's the key to understanding Mark's gospel and understanding Christ and his kingdom. It's the key to understanding it. To understand that he is the son of God, God incarnate, is the key to understanding all this, right? It's the key to understanding that, that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. That it's, a, it's not a temporal kingdom like all the other kingdoms in this world. It's an eternal one. And, it, and it's not a physical kingdom, at least not yet. At least not yet, right? It's a spiritual one in which he delivers his people from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of sin and from eternal death and the kingdom of Satan, right, by his triumphant coming into this world. This gospel marks, Mark's gospel marks the decisive moment in salvation history so far. That Jesus is eternal God. That's the key that unlocks the meaning of everything else that he does. Think about it. It explains, for instance, where he gets his power to deliver souls from demonic possession. Doesn't it? Like, where does that come from? Well, that he's God. It explains where, you know, he gets his power to heal the afflicted, right? The paralyzed, the withered, the, the, the blind, the deaf. It, it explains where he gets his power to raise the dead, where he gets his power to cleanse the lepers, where he gets his power to undo, listen now, all the manner of the vicious effects of sin in this world. It's like Christ enters in and the consequences of the curse flee before his powerful presence. It explains why he spoke with such arresting authority and power. It explains why he spoke as one who knows God face to face because he does. It explains why his death is like no other. It explains why His atoning sacrifice for sinners actually has value and merit that expiates the guilt of our sins. It explains why he has the power to offer the propitiation for our sins that extinguishes the wrath of God for everyone who believes. That life-giving power in his resurrection, right? It explains his life and his death and his words and his works that they're like none other because he is God the Son who is like none other. Unless Jesus be God. Here's the point. Unless Jesus be God, none of this makes sense. 
and it's all make-believe. In fact, J.C. Ryle says of the divinity of Christ, he says, he says, let believers cling to this doctrine with jealous watchfulness. With jealous watchfulness. With it, he says, they stand upon a rock. Without it, they have nothing solid under their feet. Our hearts are weak. Our sins are many. We need a Redeemer who is able to save to the uttermost and deliver from the wrath to come. And we have such a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. Jesus is mighty God. He is the Messiah God. And John's his herald. John is his herald. He's the messenger that goes before him. He is the prophet of his coming. And I love the way, I I absolutely love the way that Mark describes John. He does it in a remarkable economy of words. Do you know why? It's so we don't get bogged down with John, but rather we see John as an instrument pointing to Jesus. That's the great significance of John. You with me? Look at it. Look what he says here. Verses 4 through 8. Then we'll break it down. He says, John appeared. John appeared. No background, no, no. John just appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I think it's very interesting here, isn't it? That without any description of John's life to this point, without any sort of setup whatsoever, without any any fanfare, Mark just simply says, hey, John appeared. He just showed up. John came on the scene. And for what purpose? He came on the scene to act as the herald of Christ, to act as the messenger to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. John showed up. And he comes on the scene, and I want us to think about what Mark tells us here, what he has to say about John in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ in three categories, okay? Let me just give them to you first, and then we'll go through them and we'll think about them each individually. First, I want us to think about this. I want us to talk about the timing of John's ministry and, and the dress that he, the, the manner of dress, you know, and the place of his ministry. So the timing and the dress and the place of his ministry, right? That's the first thing we're going to talk about, why that's significant. And then second, Regarding, I want to talk regarding the ministry of baptism and the call to repentance and what, you know, that means for us. And then third, I want us to consider his message regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so those are the three categories or the three sort of themes under which we're going to look at this. And first, I just want us to think about this timing. Think about the timing of John showing up, appearing in the wilderness and beginning this ministry, right? 
John appears on the scene. I don't want us to think about this because it's remarkable. John appears on the scene after 400 years of prophetic silence from God. There has not been a prophet in Israel in 400 years. Malachi is the last dude that spoke for the Lord. Now, there were other guys, false prophets perhaps, that stood up and pretended to speak for God. But the last authentic voice of the Lord had been 400 years ago, right? And most of the people in Israel thought that the prophetic ministry, God's prophetic ministry to to Israel was over. There'd been no prophets. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, here comes this prophet proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And he came in the perfect time. Israel at this day, in these days, beloved, was in total disarray politically and socially and spiritually. They were. They were under the, the, the thumb of the Roman government. Okay, they were a, a Roman vassal state, and they had a vassal king, Herod Antipas, who was a wicked, vengeful, sinful man who was utterly indifferent to the things of God and utterly indifferent to the people. And the religious leadership in Israel was, was just, it was terrible. The Sanhedrin that was composed of Pharisees and Sadducees and were supposed to be, you know, the religious voice to the people, right? They were, they were impossibly fractured. The Sadducees were the theological liberals. You remember those guys. Those are the guys that didn't believe in the resurrection and, you know, questioned Jesus about it, right? They were pro-Roman. They were, they were just, they were, they were your typical theological liberal, your social, you know, religious you know, kind of guys. Then you had the Pharisees, right? And, and the Pharisees, you know, they were anti-Roman and they were conservative, so to speak. But the problem with the Pharisees, right, was that they had taken divine truth, biblical truth, and they had buried it under a mountain of legalistic ritual and worthless tradition. And so the people, the, the general public as a result, they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? They were spiritually ignorant. They were absent any voice for God. There was no one who spoke on behalf of God. That is, until John showed up. He was a spiritual shock to their system. Man, he shook them up. He was this guy who came immediately as a prophet, but dressed in a really strange way. Like, here's a guy that was dressed in camel's hair and with a leather belt. And he ate simple and strange food. Locusts and wild honey. I think about that, you know, in, the, in this day when people are always trying to find the secret diets from the Bible that will take you from being fat to skinny, right? I never see anybody promote locusts and wild honey. Just saying. Now, World Economic Forum promotes locusts, but I haven't seen, you know... Anybody do that with regards to the Word of God? Here's John shows up. And he's, he's a shock to them. And he thunders forth, right, as a messenger from God. He's not, he's, he's not worried about offending anybody. John's, John's not a guy who composes his message and then sits, at, sits down and goes, Now, maybe I can say this in a non-offensive way. 
unintrusive way. Let me think. What's a word that I can use that sounds like sin but isn't really sin? Maybe I'll use the word mistakes. Maybe I'll use the word failures. Maybe I'll say, you're not really a sinner, you're a victim. Yeah. No, he didn't do any of that. He did none of that. He did none of that. He came and he preached. As the man under the command of the living God. So why was it? That when he came forward, he dressed like this. Well, what's, what's the deal with this? Is this like some, you know, what is he doing here? Is this a shtick? No, it's not. It's not at all. The reason he dressed like this, for one reason, number one, is so that he would be readily identifiable. Readily identifiable, here's the, here's the issue, readily identifiable as the Elijah that was to come before the arrival of the Lord. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. The last words of the prophet Malachi before silence for 400 years were these. Behold, this is God speaking, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John appeared as he did. John dressed like he did. He lived as he did. So that when the people saw him, they would see a living picture of Elijah who came before him. Because he was the fulfillment of the Elijah promise. He was the Elijah that God promised through Malachi, not the actual prophet. That's where the Jews got it wrong. They thought like because Elijah had been taken away in a chariot that he was just going to you know, come back, I guess, on a chariot and be dropped in the middle of everybody and start preaching again. No. No. Elijah wasn't going to be another one of those clowns that goes to heaven and comes back and writes a book about it. Because that doesn't happen. Unless you're Paul. And then you're not allowed to talk about it. He comes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And his appearance was just like Elijah. That's how Elijah dressed. But moreover, his appearance, beloved, his austere manner of life, the seriousness and the gravity of, of John, it stood as a condemnation of the luxuriant living of the elites in the Jewish society and the spiritual listlessness, listlessness of the people of Israel, the godlessness of their existence. Think about it. Elijah thundered against what? He thundered against the idolatry and spiritual depravity of his age, didn't he? He thundered against the worship of Baal. And he famously was at the center of one of the coolest scenes in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into it this morning. But imagine how weary your arm would get beheading all of the prophets of Baal.
Just as Elijah thundered against idolatry and the spiritual depravity of his own age and called his people back to God, so did John as he fearlessly engaged in his ministry in the wilderness. Though he was austere, John was very satisfied to assume the role that God had assigned to him. He didn't desire fame or fortune. He wasn't like so many people today who just ache to be famous for five minutes, which is why they prostitute their lives on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter. He was satisfied to serve the Lord. But why the wilderness? I mean, why wouldn't you do your ministry in Jerusalem? Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you go into, man, right under the temple steps where you could address everybody, man, and call down, you know, all, call out all the sin and the wretchedness and everything that was going on inside the temple? Why not, why not take up, you know, a, a spot on Solomon's portico, you know, and rail against the wickedness? Why? Why the wilderness? Why would God send him into the wilderness? Well, here's why. Beloved, it's because the wilderness, the wilderness held a special significance in Israel's history. I want you to think about this. When God sent Moses to confront Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go, what was it that Moses said? We need to go three or four days into the wilderness. We need to worship our God. We can't stick behind. We can't leave anybody behind. We're going to need all our flocks and stuff because we don't know what what all we're going to need. Like, You need to let us go so we can go and worship our God. And it was in the wilderness, wasn't it? Where God really revealed himself to Israel. At the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember, God had brought them out of the decadence and the wickedness and the spiritual filth of Egypt. And he'd brought them out of that world that they knew. Egypt, right? In order to consecrate them to himself. He brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them to worship him at Mount Sinai. And there, God revealed himself to them in thunder and fire and in smoke, didn't he? He revealed himself through the words of Moses. He made promises of blessing and cursing that that as they either obeyed or rejected his law would be their lot, right? He carried them through the wilderness. He brought them to, you know, the land of promise, didn't he? And then they went into Canaan to take possession of the promised land. And what did they do? They made a total shipwreck of their spiritual lives, didn't they, ultimately? Didn't they? Oh, there was a little period of good, a little period of, the, of, the, of the, you know, the great monarchies of David and Solomon, but except for that, there wasn't a whole lot to write home about. They wrecked it. By this time, it was clearly evident. But now here was this prophet in the wilderness. And he was preaching this message, this this message to come out from the godless world around you and come out to the wilderness once more and hear what I will say to you on behalf of Almighty God. Leave what you know behind and come out to the prophet of God. Come out to the wilderness once more 
Get out of that decadence. Get out of that worthlessness. Get out of the spiritual death that you're living in. Come out to the wilderness once more and let's try this again. That's where God met with his people. That's where God cared for his people. It's where the Lord prepared the way for his people. This was a time for a new beginning. And John was in the wilderness announcing a new exodus. He was announcing a greater exodus. He was announcing salvation. The pouring out of the Spirit. I'm the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. But he wasn't going to quibble and debate. You want this? You better come out from everything you know. You want this? You've got to leave your old life behind. That was a symbolism of going out into the wilderness. Leave your old comforts behind. Leave everything you trust in behind. Leave your old way of life behind. Leave it all behind. That's the symbolism. And you know what? It was required of the Jews if they were going to find salvation. And it's required of us as well. It's required of us as well. William Lane says, the, the willingness to return to the wilderness signifies the acknowledgement of Israel's history as one of disobedience and rebellion and a desire to begin once more. Let's go back to the wilderness before we ever came into the land and start all over again. That's the meaning. The significance of the wilderness. John began his ministry in the wilderness near the Jordan River. And you know what? People flocked to him. They flocked to him. In fact, look with me at this description of his ministry here. In verses 4 and 5. Again, look at it. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And look what Mark says here. He says that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out. And we know that's hyperbole, right? We know he's speaking in figurative terms here, right? He doesn't mean that literally. Not every single person in Judea and Jerusalem went out to hear John. But you know what? Multitudes did. A bunch of people did. And why was that so? I mean, think about it. Again, this ministry is not taking place in downtown Jerusalem. It's happening out in the wilderness, out by the Jordan River. It's a little bit of a hike to go hear this dude preach. Why are people so attracted to John's ministry? Well, I would say, first of all, some people, some people, no doubt, went out to hear John because... They were curious. They were curious. Here's this guy out here doing this thing. He's got this going on in the desert. And I'm sure there were people that were curious to go out and see what was going on. And, you know, that's just reality. People are drawn to something that's new and strange, aren't they? Aren't they? So there's that. But that's not the heart of it. That's not the reason all these people came out. I would say to you, that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, they were drawn out to hear John 
because he was preaching a message that they were not hearing from their rabbis. He was preaching a message. He was preaching sermons that they were not hearing from the rabbis who preached in the synagogues. And it's interesting here that his message had such a deep appeal to them because if you were to sum it up in a word, John's sermon was repent. 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 Did I tell you? Repent. Repent and bring forth fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Repent. That's not a popular message these days, is it? That's hate speech. That's what that is. That's hate speech. Repent. That was his message. Repent and prepare for the coming of the Lord. Turn away from your sin and your selfish living. Stop being a fool. Stop living as if there is no God. Stop living as if you are God. Stop living as if you think you and God are on the same level. You guys are just peers. Stop living as if if you don't call it sin, God doesn't call it sin. If you can redefine it and excuse it for yourself, then you can do the same for God. Repent. Cut it out. Stop. Get a clue. Turn away from your sin. Stop excusing it. Turn around and turn to the Lord. Turn to the coming king. Change your mind and your ways regarding your sin and regarding God. Turn to the truth. Grieve over your disobedience. Grieve that you sin, not that your sin you want to commit gets stymied. Abandon worldliness. Abandon sinfulness. Abandon arrogant rebellion and seek the Lord and confess your sins. Can I tell you what, beloved? I'll tell you this. Repentance begins, repentance begins where excuse-making and blame-shifting and victimhood end. Are you hearing me? Start here. Start with repentance. Start with the fact that before God, you must call and cry out to him and confess your sinfulness. Start here or the coming of Christ won't mean anything. And you'll miss it. John didn't heal the wounds of the people lightly. You know, like Jeremiah talks about. He didn't heal the, the wounds of the people lightly. He didn't cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. The way that John prepared the hearts of the people for the coming of the Lord was to say, you better repent. You need to repent. That was a message Israel hadn't heard in years. It's a message, quite frankly, that the church in America hasn't heard in years. Can we just be honest and say that? It was powerful and it was arresting. You know why? Because it dealt with reality. Here's the truth, man. People, people like to deny the reality of sin. They like to pretend that sin doesn't exist. But you know what? 
The burden and the guilt of sin is undeniable. It really is. It affects our conscience, which is why people try so hard to excuse their sin and cover their sin and deaden their conscience in so many ways. Don't they? They deny its sin and call it someone else. They refuse to deal with their own sin and instead point out the sin in everybody else. As if that somehow gets you off the hook. We drink to forget. We take drugs to pretend we never knew. And I'm not just talking illicit drugs. I'm talking drugs that get prescribed by doctors that we think are going to be sanctification miracle pills. And they're not. Are they? Are they? The way you deal with sin is to repent. The way you deal with sin is to repent. People know deep in their hearts, they know deep in their hearts that things aren't right, that there's a God that that exists and to whom they must give an account. They try to lie to themselves and, and say, God doesn't exist. Meanwhile, all of creation says, yes, he does. They're scared of the future and they fear death and so they expend exorbitant amounts of money to ward them both off. Look, you want to make money? I'm going to tell you how to make money. You want to make money, ladies? Here's how you make money. Go get some goat's milk, whatever. Goat's milk, you know, cream. And then just put some random stuff into it that nobody else has put into it before. Mix it up and sell it as an age-defying wrinkle cream. I'm not kidding. You will have, and then just get five people that you know that are your friends to hashtag it on Instagram or Twitter and how awesomely good it is and how they went from looking 60 to 16. You will make money hands over fist. You know why? Because that plays into our fear of death and and really the consequences of sin. There's only one way to deal with sin. It's repentance. Repent. People came near to hear John because he opened people's eyes to reality as it actually was. He didn't didn't paste over their eyes with peace, peace. He said, hey, look, you know what? Y'all are sinners. You are separated from the living God. You need to repent. But you know what? There's a Savior coming. There's a Savior coming. You need to repent because there's a Savior coming. You need to prepare your hearts because there's a Savior that is coming. But repentance is the critical message, and it's still critical for the church today. It really is. Let me just say something about that. I know I've been talking about kind of around it. I want to say something to you specifically about this need for repentance. Some people think once I repent of my sins and I come to Christ, I never need to repent again. You're wrong. You're wrong. If you think that, you're, you're, you're in error. That is not, that's not the truth. Repentance is necessary not only to come to Christ and to receive salvation, right, and the forgiveness of sins, but continuing repentance is necessary for true spiritual life in Christ. You hearing me? Charles Spurgeon said, if Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, 
without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin, but must arouse myself to love and serve him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that has killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? Sincere repentance is continual repentance. Believers repent until their dying day. Amen? If we say that we have no sin, we lie, right? And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. I am writing this to you, brothers, so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, praise God, you've got an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Look, as we live, we still sin. And we need to return to God in repentance and faith and seek the grace of his forgiveness in Christ, to know it anew. When we sin, we lose our certainty of forgiveness. We, we, we lose, you know, our, our sense of peace with God, or at least we should. And then when we confess our sins, we're reawakened to all that Christ has done for us in salvation, and God revives our soul. If you can live in continual and constant and sort of repetitive sin, and you feel no, like, you feel no rift in your relationship, in your fellowship with the Lord, I'm going to tell you right now, it's because you don't have fellowship and, and, and a relationship with the Lord. Not a saving one. Not a saving one. Look, if you're married, you know how this works. When you sin against your spouse, what's it like? Things aren't hunky-dory, are they? Are they? Is your marriage over the moment that you sin? Is it? Is it? No, of course it's not. But what must you do? in order for you to enjoy the fullness of that marriage. What must you do? Repent and ask for forgiveness. It's the same for us in Christ. When we confess our sins, we're awakened, reawakened to all that Christ has done for us in salvation, and he revives our souls, God does. We've got to always be repenting and confessing our sins, not to be saved again, but because we are saved. And sin disrupts our fellowship and our joy in the Lord that true repentance restores. Right? Right? People treat repentance like it's a bad thing. Like, you know, I hear you, but if I repent, like somehow that's some great big stain against your character. No, the stain against your character is your unwillingness to repent because nobody's confused about the reality that you're a sinner. Like nobody's sitting there thinking, man, if he repents then that's going to reveal that he's a sinner. And I really didn't think he was. <laughs> Says nobody. Says nobody. Repentance is a gift from God. Are you hearing me? And we ought to treat it like one. Rather than acting like it's the worst possible thing that could ever happen to someone. No, it's really not. It's the door to salvation. And it's, 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 it is the continuing access to God of of. of you know, fellowship and, and joy in the Lord. John's message was repentance. But still, you know, in the history of prophets, as prophets go, like, that call, that's not an unusual message for, for prophets, is it? Is it? No, those guys usually preached. I mean, sometimes they got to preach good, you know, like, enjoyable things to hear. 
repentance is good. But they got to hear like enjoyable things like, you know, the new covenant. But most times it was repent. You need to repent, right? That wasn't unusual. What was unusual was John's baptism. That was unusual. That was not normal. That was a new kind of ministry experience, right? Now, here's the deal. The Jews were familiar with ceremonial washings. They, they weren't familiar with that, right? They did them themselves. They were familiar with the ceremonial washings, for instance, that took place when a Gentile became a Jewish convert, right? They would be washed all over. And, and the symbolism was that that they, they were being cleansed of their old pagan beliefs and, and, and they were embracing Yahweh as their God, right? So when a, when a Gentile would become a Jewish proselyte, they would need to be cleansed from head to toe. And then once that happened, oh, then they had to be circumcised too. And then once that happened, they were eligible if they wanted to, to take a Jewess as their wives. So these ceremonial washings they were familiar with if you were a Gentile desiring to become a religious Jew. But nobody Jewish got baptized. Nobody Jewish got baptized because you were already a part of the ethnic people of God. You didn't need to humble yourself like that because all of your beliefs were hunky-dory. And your religious standing was unimpeachable. And yet here comes John, dressed in camel's hair, leather's belt, leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey, saying, repent and be baptized. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It was a blow to their religious pride, beloved. That's what this was. It was a declaration. If you were to get baptized, it was you saying, I am no different than, abject, than an abject pagan before God. That at the point of forgiveness, I am confessing. At the point of forgiveness with God, my ethnicity, my circumcision, my, the, the law of God, the, the temple, the sacrifices, the offerings, my Sabbath observance, all the feast days, none of those things make any difference at all. None of them. To be baptized was to say, I am spiritually destitute before the Lord. There is nothing good in me. To be baptized symbolized their need to be cleansed of their sins, the washing away of their empty religion, and their need for a new life from the Lord. They needed to be baptized confessing their sins. You know what it was? It was the early, or the Jewish equivalent, the John the Baptist ministry equivalent of confessing radical depravity. We're radically depraved. Sin has affected every aspect of us. Mind, heart, soul, will, everything. I got nothing before God. And all that I think is worth anything needs to be washed away. I need to be cleansed of it. It's a symbolic act. And here's the key. This is how we're to understand the baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Because people can get really twisted up on this. John's baptism, I want you to hear me, did not actually confer the forgiveness of sins. Why do I say that? Because there's only one thing that can cleanse us of our sins. And that one thing is what? The blood of Jesus Christ. So we know that this baptism does not actually confer forgiveness of sins. So 
What is the meaning of this? And the meaning, beloved, is this, is that this baptism, John's baptism was done in preparation or in anticipation of the forgiveness of sins that would come through the Lord Jesus Christ. The baptism, his baptism was a baptism of preparation, a baptism of anticipation of what the coming Messiah would do, a baptism that confessed, I need a Savior. And, and in faith, because that's always part of true, true repentance, I'm looking to the one that John's talking about. I'm being baptized here because I believe the message that John is preaching of this one that is to come, that's mightier than him, that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I'm trusting in that, and so I'm baptizing myself as an expression of my turning away from my sins. That's what it meant. I'm preparing myself for the one of whom John speaks. All right, well, what did, what did John have to say about Jesus? What was his message about Jesus? Well, take a look at it, verses 7 and 8. Succinct, very pointed. Mark says, and he preached, John did, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this summary of John's preaching by Mark, it is, it's again, it's a summary. This is not all that John said, obviously, because if you read the other Gospels, the other Synoptic Gospels, you can find the stuff, other stuff that John said. This is a summary, but it's the heart, it's the kernel of what he preached of what he preached about Christ. And I want you to notice he points to two things here. He points to Christ's greatness and to Christ's work, doesn't he? First thing he does is he says, this one that is coming, he is mightier than I am. He is mightier than I am. I want to tell you something about the greatness and the glory of this one to whom you're looking. This one that you're anticipating coming. He is greater. He is mightier than I am. And when he says that, I want you to hear me, he is saying a mouthful. Because the word mightier there, the Greek word speaks of power and capacity. But it does so in a way that describes complete superiority above everybody else. What he's saying in essence is this. John is saying, you know what, it's not just that, that Christ is greater. It's not just that he's wiser or stronger. I'm telling you, he's saying to you, that there is an impassable chasm between me and the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not fit into any categories of human description. You can try all you want to, to try to fit him into your, a human box. He belongs to an entirely different order. That's what I'm saying to you. That's what John was saying here. He is an infinite magnitude. He's infinite magnitudes greater than John and anyone else. When John says he's mightier than me, what he's saying is he is unique in his glory and in his splendor, and nobody compares to him. Nobody. And he emphasizes, he punches that truth home. He punches the point home by saying, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I don't think that we have a possible, we, we, we don't, without me trying to be vulgar up here, and I'm not going to be vulgar in the house of God, we do not have an adequate comparison in English terms to what John the Baptist says here. 
His humility is on full display. His awareness of the infinite worth of Christ without question. And here's why. To stoop down and untie the strap of someone's sandals was the most degrading task that any slave could possibly perform. To stoop down and undo the straps of the sandals and wash the animal and human excrement and feces off the feet was the most humiliating task that any slave could ever perform. In fact, someone's personal servant couldn't be forced to lower himself to perform that duty for his master. What you would do is you would pick your least liked Gentile slave and you would place him to do that job. And his, his responsibility to do this was referred to as being the under the stairs servant. Like some kind of creature under the bridge kind of thing. John is saying, I want you to understand how great he is. That he is so great that for me to stoop down and to unstrap his sandals would be a task too honorable, a task too great, a task too high, a task too good for me when it comes to the greatness of Christ. Despite, think about this, despite being Jesus' earthly cousin, despite his lofty status as, as Christ's forerunner, despite Jesus' confession that John himself was the greatest of men who had been born abo- among women, John had a proper view of himself before the Lord. And he's saying, I am not worthy to be less than a slave to this man. Now i got to tell you something. When I think about that and I read that, Beloved, that is convicting to me. I hope it is to you. I hope it is to you. I am certainly not the greatest of men born among women. But in humility, do I regard Christ and his lordship like I should? His greatness, his glory, his majesty, do I really regard that like I should to you? Yes, I know that Christ calls his disciples his friends, Right? But, listen, it's not the friendship of peers, is it? Is it? It's not the friendship of of, of equals. It can't be. Christ is highly exalted. He is glorious beyond all measure. He is Lord and King. I think of John. I think of the Apostle John. Boots mentioned. I think of him, that disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who rested his head on Christ's bosom, right, at the Last Supper. I think about him. When by the glory of God, he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day while he was on the Isle of Patmos and he caught an unfiltered glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that? John saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were 
white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. What was the disciple who Jesus loved? Yeah. And he fell at Christ's feet as though dead. So overwhelmed was he by the view of Christ's glory. Yes, Jesus is the shepherd of our souls. Yes, he is the one who gently leads his sheep. Praise God that's so. Yes, he is the one who binds up the brokenhearted. Yes, he is the balm of Gilead. True, true, true. But beloved, beloved, he is also the king. The king of unrivaled glory. Who commands our unwavering allegiance and our whole-souled worship and our, our obedience and fear and love. Listen to me. We need to keep that tension in mind. You hearing me? No, I need to hear better than that. Are you hearing me? We need to keep this tension in mind. It keeps us, first of all, from an unhealthy, craven fear of the Lord, thinking Him far off and unconcerned and unapproachable, a God of just doctrines and decrees and nothing else. But it also keeps us from becoming too familiar with Him and lessening His greatness and discounting His authority and diminishing his majesty and making a mockery of the revelation of his glory. You hearing me? The Jesus that is presented in so many modern churches, this Jesus who just fetches you whatever your heart desires, this Jesus whose job is to make you happy and, and elevate, you know, your life. And all, that Jesus makes me that imaginary Jesus isn't worth a cup of warm spit. I'm sorry if that offends you, but it's true. Why would you say that? I don't know, because Jesus said, if you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. John preached the greatness of Christ. And then last, he preached his unique ministry that far surpassed John's own. Look what he says here. It's so right on. He goes, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will pour out on you the Spirit of God. Now, here's the deal. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Zechariah, they had all prophesied the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the people of God. And, and, and that prophecy, John says, comes to fruition in Jesus Christ alone. Now look, there's no way that John could have anticipated the full glory of such a gift, the marvelous ramifications, ramifications of John baptizing his pe of Jesus, I mean, baptizing his people whom he came to save with the Holy Spirit, but it is miraculous beyond measure. It's remarkable. In fact, that's why, you know, 
Paul rejoiced in his letter to Titus when he says that God has saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is Titus 3, verses 5 and 6. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He gave us the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What's the glory in that? Here's the glory in that. Christ pours out the Holy Spirit that he might witness to Christ's glory. He pours out the Holy Spirit so that he regenerates dead hearts and souls. He he pours out the Holy Spirit who alone grants the faith by which we believe in Christ unto eternal life. He's the one who is our sanctifier, who makes us holy. He seals us unto God. He he pours out the Holy Spirit who purifies us and grows us in righteousness. This Holy Spirit who gives light to our darkened minds so that we can understand the Word of God and so that we can be renewed. He gives the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us in our prayers when we don't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit who leads us through trials, who causes us to persevere in the faith, and who safely brings us home. He gives us the Holy Spirit who pours out in abundance abroad in our hearts the love of God. John couldn't give the Holy Spirit to anyone. The the apostles couldn't. Neither angels. Only Jesus Christ. Only the Son of God. And how we need to learn that. When we see John say, he will give you the Holy Spirit, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is, you have no need to go anywhere except Jesus Christ to find your greatest needs fulfilled. So stop. Stop. We need to learn that. Paul Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ. Then he said, I have a great Christ for my need. All that we desperately need in some way is found in him. He stands alone. That's the point. Jesus stands alone. That's what John is getting, or what Mark is trying to press into our hearts from the ministry of John. He stands alone. He stands alone in history. And so here's the great question. The real question, the one that matters more than any other question. Where do you stand in relation to him? He stands alone. Where do you stand in relation to him? That's the most essential question. Where do you stand with him? Not only in terms of salvation, but in terms of fellowship. Not merely in terms of profession or presumption, but in reality. Where do you stand with Jesus? Where do you stand with him? It's a question for all of us. Because here's the deal, man. The gospel of Mark, this gospel of Mark is an account of the Lord Jesus Christ, of all that he has done, of, 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 of all that he is, of who he is, and of where people stood in relation to him. Those who received him as Lord and King and those who rejected him. It's an account of how people responded to Christ, the true and the false, the sincere and the hypocrite, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness or the one who says, ah, 
I'm pretty good on my own. This gospel is a record of those who felt the weight of their sin and so repented and believed in Christ and those who didn't and therefore did not come to, that, God, come to him because they did not believe that God's forgiveness was of any great significance. It's the story of 11 true and one devil disciple. The gospel's about Jesus Christ and where you stand in relation to him. And there's nothing that we should take more seriously than that. Where do you stand with Christ? Where do you stand in relationship to him? Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord. Father, that is a pointed question. Where do I stand with the one who stands alone? I pray, Father, that right now as we are considering the words that we've just heard, that our response would be sincere and it would be honest. I pray that we would actually approach this question with great gravity. Where do I stand? Am I certain that my hope and my trust are in Jesus Christ exclusively? And what he has done, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Or am I trusting in Jesus plus something else? Which is a false gospel. Am I walking in honestness and in faithfulness before the Lord? Am I living a life of repentance because fellowship with Christ means more to me than the false promises of sin? Does my life give evidence of, of real repentance or am I a blame shifter and an excuse maker and a victim? Am I conscious about the need to continually repent and confess sins so that I might draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ and be satisfied in Him alone and truly please Him and really love Him. Lord, those are all the questions we need to ask and I pray that we'd ask them and answer them honestly before your face this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.